Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which can be found on page 1780 of the Pew Bible. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Thanks, Libby. Morning, everyone. It's your Tumblr. Come and get it. I'm enjoying it, though. All right. Um, last week, we talked about the same passage, and I focused on sexual immorality. And, I, and impurity and greed and what that all meant. And I preached for quite a while on that. So we're not going to focus on that this week. We're going to focus on what the apostle says about how we, talk, how we talk, okay? And so to start with, one of the things that people need to face in terms of what Jesus has revealed to the world is that your words are terrifyingly important. Way more important than you want them to be way more important than you think they are. Um, if you could change it, you probably would. The, the words that you speak and the effect of those words and the meaning of those words and what speech is, whether spoken or signed, that conveyance of truth from one person to another in terms of its content is terrifyingly important. Um, you can see this all through. The Proverbs has a lot to say about, in terms of wisdom about how we talk. It says, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but the deceitful tongue crushes the spirit, right? It gets more descriptive than that even. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity or complete destruction, right? Um, There's lots of verses. This is just a little spattering if you want to look at that later. But there's lots and lots and lots of passages in the Bible that talk about the importance of speech, wise speech, foolish speech. But the argument all the way through the Bible is is that the power of life and death is in the human tongue. Like what we say, how we convey it, it's terrifyingly important. The Apostle James says it this way in the New Testament. If anyone considers himself religious, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word religion has a positive connotation. Usually it means um, like a, a negative fake religiosity. But in this passage, it's meant to mean real spirituality. Himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now, that's really interesting. What he's saying is he's saying, I can talk to somebody who says that they're a believer. I can only listen to how they talk. And based on hearing them talk, I can tell you if they're a believer or not. Just like that. Think about that. It's pretty serious business. Anybody discerning can tell the reality of your faith simply on how you talk. Because it's that big a thing, right? You can think about how Jesus talked about this. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going through all these teachings. And he says this, he says, You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anybody who says, you fool, be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is a, like an Aramaic slang term that's not quite as bad as you fool. But, it, but the, and the Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council. So he's like, listen, if you call somebody like an idiot or something, you're, that literally the, the ruling Jewish elders can like fine you or like they can, like that's like legally wrong. He's like, well, let me just say, if you say you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Now there's a couple things to pick up on this. One, he literally says that if you say you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And Jesus has no stray words, okay? Like that's important. Secondly, Note what commandment he derives this from. So earlier in the passage, he says, listen, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Now he didn't say that so that if a guy lusts after a woman, he'd say, well, I guess I've already committed adultery. I might as well go through with it. That's not the point, right? The, the point is, is that it comes from the same thing, right? Lust is just adultery held private, but there's nothing private from God. Right? And so it's a kind of atheism. As though you could keep that lust, that adultery in the heart, and nobody would see it, and that it would have no consequences, right? But notice, so he derives that lust is wrong from the commandment against adultery. Where, what does he derive the statement that to call somebody a fool endangers your soul, right? He derives it from the commandment about murder. Do you notice that? How we can and cannot talk to other human beings, you can't talk to them like that, is derived from the idea that you can't speak out of or act out of anger, which is derived from the commandment about murder. Right? Now, that may not make too much sense. James makes it clear in James 3, 9 and 12. He says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. My brothers, this should not be. Can fresh water and salt water flow out of the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. See, he's saying, listen, if you come to worship, right, and you sing, let's say you sang the songs that we just sang, and let's say you kind of meant them at least, right? At least you kind of meant them, right? And so with your tongue, you praised your God and Father. That's great. Now, every human being you encountered this last week or this last month is made in the image of God. They bear the divine image, and in themselves, they carry around with them the sacredness of God. That's why sins are sins and they matter, right? How did you treat them? Did you treat them all like they were that? Right? Did you talk to them all like they were that? Right? And the answer is, of course not. For all of us, basically, probably, right? And so he's like, you see the problem here? He's like, you can praise God knowing he's God with your mouth. And then with the same mouth, you can curse. And curse here doesn't literally mean like you're hexing them with like— mystical damnation. It means basically like you don't speak to them based on what they are, right? It means to speak derisively or destructively to them. He's like, and you curse people. He's like, don't you see that's like trying to get like grapefruit off of a pear tree. The two can't produce the same thing. And so one of the things that's terrifying about our words is it reveals who and what we are, right? Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. One of the things that's terrifying about our words is not just that words are powerful, but that the two organs, the two mystical organs of our body that are most closely connected is our tongue and our heart. The terrifying thing about your tongue is it's so closely connected to your heart, and the stuff that's in your heart can get out really fast. The tongue wouldn't be anywhere near as big a problem if it was like, wasn't connected with your heart at all. And so, we have to recognize that in the scriptures, um, how we talk, what we say, how we do it, is this extraordinarily big deal. Way bigger than we dreamed. In fact, the apostle puts it right next to sexual immorality. Why does he do that? You know? Because in the book of Ephesians, in this passage, he's talking about the body of Christ, that is, people who are believers and in community with one another as spiritual brothers and sisters. And then you say, well, what that human beings do destroys their community with each other and causes them to destroy and hurt each other? And the answer is, sexual immorality will destroy everybody's relationship with everybody. It's not just about you and who you do or don't sleep with. When a group of people are not together committed to sexual morality amidst them, it will destroy every relationship because it creates rivalries and all kinds of new immoralities and jealousies and all sorts of things. And so it wrecks everybody's life together. And how we talk does the exact same thing. 
If we speak to each other by cursing each other or by attacking each other, or if we, we speak unfaithfully, right, it destroys everything. It makes everybody hate each other. Everybody's gossiping about each other. We're full of slander and not full of affirmation and encouragement or good correction. And we become broken down rather than built up. So people are, sometimes you can be like, okay, well, what's the solution to this, right? Is the solution, let's just be like 100% positive, right? Like everything you say should be positive. Let's just make a 100% positive rule. We'll just be a place where no matter what happens, everything said is positive, right? And like, like on one level, it might occur, like that sounds, you probably know me well enough to know that I don't probably buy into this. Um, but the, the problem um, with this is that Jesus didn't talk that way. <laughs> Jesus said a lot of negative things. The, the gospel doesn't talk that way. The gospel is the good news that we can be redeemed in Christ, but it's predicated on the idea that we're horrifically terrible sinners, that we deserve damnation, and that God in his grace and love has saved us. So it says a lot of negative things too. Even the good news, that's where the word gospel literally means good news. Built into the good news is a lot of negative truths, right? And then the Bible is full of negative things, Right? And it's full of positive things. It's just much more holistic than, well, let's just be 100% positive all the time, right? And the second thing is, is that it doesn't ever work with human beings. I don't know if you've talked to or related to or known a person or been a person who's, who made a commitment, I'm just going to be positive all the time, right? It, it, it backfires usually really, really terribly. Either first because it's just cynical. You don't, you just do it because it's going to get you ahead or because that's what you want people to think about you, but you know it's not true of you. And you think that maybe they'll like, you'll make more money or you'll get promoted or something like that will happen to you, right? But the problem is, is that that's terribly inauthentic. It's, it's sometimes referred to, it used to be called sycophancy. It just sounds like a nasty word, right? That is being somebody who you're not in the flattery of others, right? If it's cynical, it's always going to lead to flattery. But that's not even the worst part of it. It's, it, it. For people who are trying to do it authentically, it's, it's incredibly unsustainable. Because you start off wanting to just be positive, right? But the, but the world isn't a positive place. You're not a positive person, right? And so what happens is, is it's kind of like somebody who tries to diet by not eating ever, anything, you know, and then they get a hold of a bag of cookies, and they eat the whole thing, right? Like when people who try to be 100% universally positive, when they blow up or when the negativity leaks out, it, it's like more concentrated and more poisonous, and it shoots out with like real pressure. And so they finally like lay into their spouse or their kid or a coworker or a subordinate or a student or a somebody, and they just like, there's no rules, no holes barred. They dump all of the poison they've had for like a month or a week all on like one person. It's awful. I've seen it happen many times. For a lot of times, they do it by means of gossip. Because they don't want to really attack somebody because that's not the kind of positivity in the cynical side that they want. Whoops. On the cynical side that they want. So what they'll do is they'll talk to somebody else, often somebody else who's fakely positive to other people, but doesn't mind tearing people down behind closed doors with another very positive person who doesn't mind tearing people down. And they'll gossip ruthlessly with each other to get out all that negativity and feel kind of refreshed in a sinful kind of way so they can get filled back up with that anger. And then they'll feel like they're really doing it. But they're not. It's, it's an unsustainable way to live. Or you'll be the kind of person who goes around who's always positive, and you'll never step in with courage to the areas of life where something difficult needs to be said. Which means you'll never love anyone. Not really. Love always requires the full-orbed relationship of telling people the whole truth with grace. And that's always going to include some negative things, because we're trying to help each other grow in grace and become godly and to become imitators of God and walk in the way of love and be a fragrant offering. There's no way to help somebody do that and never say anything negative. And so you can't love. So then, so for example, in this passage that we're in right now, it has both positive, neutral teaching, and negative speech all in the same passage. So, be imitators of God as God's dearly loved children, right? So it starts out with you're here, you're, you're a believer. So that, what that means is, is that you're not only God's, you're, you're not only his child, but he loves you dearly. That's the first thing that's said. That's supposed to be the baseline for you. You are God's dearly loved children, right? And then he says, listen, behaving in this way is both improper and not fitting. So that's just like, that's, that's neither positive nor negative. It's just descriptive. Like, we do this, we don't do that, 
right? We, we do thanksgiving. We try to speak words of thanksgiving rather than these negative words, right? And then he says some really, really difficult stuff. Like, listen, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So why does he write that? Why does he, that's mo, that is way more negativity than there was positivity, right? Dearly loved children, that's literally three words. That's like two paragraphs of like, hey guys. Well, in the last sentence, he tells you, he says, don't be partners with them, right? So, so what the apostle is concerned about is you've, you've got these people who are believers, and they are a moral minority in a broader culture of what the Bible would call worldliness, or people living not conscious of God. In, in a place in which sexual immorality and impurity and greediness and coarse joking and obscenity is probably rampant, I know that doesn't remind you of anything, any place you've ever lived, okay? You, so we just have to like really try to identify with these people, you know what I mean? And and he says, okay, in that context, if you're a believer and you're turning away from sexual immorality and impurity and greediness of everything and coarse joking and obscenity and these sorts of things, what is going to happen is, is that you're going to be a kind of tiny moral, moral minority, and everybody hates those people, right? So it literally says a few verses later, don't go along with deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. So he's literally telling the believers to understand what God's will is, to know what it means to walk in the light rather than darkness, and then not only not to partner with sins or actions of darkness, but to actually expose the ones that are dark that people would prefer to keep hidden, but that need to come up in order for people's conscience to be turned over to repentance. Confrontation is necessary for people to repent and therefore come to God. So you have to expose them, and so everybody hates those people, right? People— naturally feel safest when they're part of a mob, right? If everybody does the same thing, no one can get prosecuted, right? And so if we all do the same sins, and nobody doesn't do those sins, then how could God be mad at us? Because one, we could say we all did it, and we didn't even know it was wrong. And then we could, if he was like, well, you shouldn't know, and he'd be like, well, who was not doing it? Who was supposed to be the person informing us of this? No such people existed. And so if there is a person who exists who is being that, they are twice offensive. And listen, they're, they're, they're not just a little bit offensive. They are an assault and a threat to you in a really visceral way because they're challenging and they're endangering your way of life, your beliefs, your behaviors, your ability to live your life however you want, right? Think about it this way for a second. Imagine if at High Point. I, and I literally hope this is true someday, okay? But let's say like the first three pews over there were filled with like all Amish people, okay? They're just like Amish believers. They're just like, yeah, we're believers in Jesus. We love the whole Bible. We just do the Amish thing. We just really like it. And we're like, all right, nice beard, you know? And, um, but the, they're always talking about consumerism. Just always talking—they're always—they're walking through—they're in Sunday school classes, they're in small groups, and they're like, yeah, consumerism is really bad. Just people buy whatever they want. They go into debt. They don't even think about what they're buying. Even like their Simplicity blogs are about $300 coffee makers. Like, they have no idea what Simplicity really is, and they—right? They just are always talking about that, right? You know how you'd feel about that? You wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like it because it's an affront to your whole way of life. You're like, well, I like the leather seats in my car, and I like— combustion engines, and I like, and why can't I have what I, you know, like, I, this is my money, and, I, and like, you'll, you, it like makes you angry about the fact that like, you do buy whatever you want. The idea that we spend this much money on these like, little roasted beans, and the liquids that come from like, throwing hot water at them, and like, like, there's all these kind of things that like, are revealed as insane. You know what I mean? You're like, there's probably moral implications to that, and I don't want any part of this. Like, it's very upsetting. You know what I mean? And so now imagine how people would feel about Christians who really obeyed everything Jesus commanded. That sexual immorality was not even named among them. That they had gotten rid of every form of impurity. Not kicked out people who they thought were impure, but every kind of impurity from their own hearts. And the greediness of soul 
where you have to take more than you produce, rather than the thankfulness and generosity that comes from people who are content to serve others, who are really rooted in love, and whose, whose moral outlook towards the world has completely been transformed. Can you imagine the level of affront that must be to the culture in which they live? And the anger it will produce in people onlooking. And so what happens naturally in human societies is that that larger group will say to that tiny moral majority is minority is they'll say, listen, there's nothing to this stupid religion stuff you're doing. It's primitive. It's old-fashioned. It's pre-science. It's really dumb. And it's not going to lead to any kind of fulfillment. You're, you're sex negative and like, you know, you, you, you're so prudish and everything's about what you can't do. Like, just let all that go and just be free of it and like live free, man. And if you don't, we're going to destroy you. Right? Don't let anyone deceive you with deceptive words and don't be partners with them. You see what the Lord says? He says, listen, they're going to say that to you, and they're going to, they're going to invite you to be their brother or their sister in the way they behave, and then they're going, to, they're going to subtly threaten you that they will destroy you if you stay threatening them through the life that you live and the witness that it creates so that they don't feel safe in the mob anymore. And listen, that's going to create in you a fear that's not just, a, not just an intellectual fear, but a visceral fear. You're going to feel the very real threat either— They'll persuade you of the threat that you're not going to really live a good life and you're not really going to get all your, you can out of life, positively. Or negatively, you're going to feel the threat that they're going to come after you if you don't do what you're told and become a partner with them. And that's very difficult to overcome. And he says, listen, let me, let me tell you something that'll sober you up when you think about that. Here's what you can be 100% sure of. No one— who gives themselves to sexual morality and impurity and greediness with no repentance, who won't turn to God, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God of Christ. Not because they were too wicked. No one's too wicked. It's not about how wicked you are. It's about who your God is, who you give allegiance to. And he says, because the people who do those three things unrepentantly, they're not believers. They might say they're believers, but they're really idolaters. They worship another God. The reason why the wrath of God is coming on them, and it is, he says, is not because they're bad. It's because they refuse to turn to the king, the one who really is the ruler and redeemer of all things, and they refuse to accept the good. They refuse to enjoy the beautiful, and they refuse to be what they were created to be. And you see, that—those that, truths are sobering. And they're only sobering because they're negative. Because the thing that these believers were dealing with was the negativity of feeling judged, feeling embattled, feeling disliked by the mob, feeling like they were being invited in to be partners with that ungodliness, and feeling pressured and threatened if they didn't. Right? I mean, think about it. Your football team comes in after the first half and they're down by 21. Well, you think the, the coach is going to be like, you guys are so great. You like, I just, the twinkle in your eyes and the curve of your chin. I mean, I just love being with you. No, he is going to preach, spit the paint off their helmets to wake them up, to prepare them for what needs to be done in the next 30 minutes, if it's all right. Now, okay, that can lead people to, okay, then, well, then, then what do we do, Nick? What, what, maybe positive is not, what do we do? Well, then, well, maybe it's like, well, maybe we should just always speak the truth. Maybe, or maybe just speak our truth. And now you might be like, speak your truth. That just sounds really relative. Well, they're both actually right. It is true. And it is an advance to say you should always speak the truth and you shouldn't speak something you know is a lie. That's true. And it's true that you should speak your truth. That is also true. If what you mean by your is what in your conscience you believe to be true on a moral level. The Bible supports that very heavily. I don't know if you know this, but in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul argues that God forgives him for murder because he conscientiously killed the people he killed because he believed it was right and necessary. And because he did it in good conscience, God was able to persuade him that he was not doing the right thing, that he needed to repent and change and lay down his own life for the good of others. And that was possible because he didn't do it cynically, knowing it was wrong. He did it in full conscientiousness that what he thought he was doing was right. 
There's lots of people. All of us are doing things that are wrong that we literally do not know are wrong. We think they're right. We think we're doing the right thing, right? We probably aren't all voting for the same person. Well, there probably is one candidate that's probably overall better than the other, right? And so all of us are doing something that's wrong, but we might—you might still—I might vote for the right person because I'm just hoping to get more money. That's much more wrong than if I had wrongly voted, if I had voted for the wrong person, really believing that it would create more flourishing for everyone, and that it was right to vote for that person, even if I was wrong about it. Conscience is fundamental, because only if a conscience is true can God then correct it and change the behavior and life of a person, really bring them to faith. It's cynicism, doing whatever is expedient, whatever you want to do, away from what you actually believe is right, that will ultimately corrode your soul beyond redemption. And so these are both true. They're just not enough. Because when you, when you combine them with an unredeemed place, you can turn either of those in just, into just a way to be dismissive of other people. Like, I can treat you however I want, and I can say whatever I want, and I can just call it my truth. You know what I mean? I can say, listen, I'm just speaking the truth. And so even though these are true, they become huge gateways for an an increase in ungodliness in speech rather than a decrease in transformation, right? So then what should we do, right? If you look in the Bible, truth is virtually never active on its own. God is holistic in his goodness. And so that which is good in content is always accompanied by goodness of manner. There's a way to do things, right? There's a way to do things. And so goodness of content and goodness of manner always have to go together. The the language of the Bible in this is grace and truth, right? Truth without grace can still be sin, and grace without truth can still be sin. The two are supposed to go together. When you put truth and grace together, you're doing what God called you to do. We need to say the true thing in the right way. You're being faithful to God. And so this, everything in our life is an act of service to God. And so what we should be thinking of is, my speech is an act of service. What kind of service am I trying to give? Well, the answer is faithful service. And faithful service in our speech is to say things that are both good in manner, they're gracious, and good in content, they're true. So it looks something like this. The issue is not whether it's positive or negative. The issue is whether it's above or below this line, whether it's faithful or unfaithful. And as it's faithful, it might be increasingly sacrificial and cost you more and still be faithful, or it might be increasingly destructive of other people and cost them more and so be increasingly hateful. Remember, sometimes Christians don't like—so in the American political sphere, Sometimes people on the left will call things hate when people clearly don't hate them, right? So they can say, if you say that um, certain things are, are like wrong, they'll be like, that you hate those people. That's hate, right? Well, in some ways, the, the Bible does use that definition. If you do something that is truly for the ill of another person, the Bible calls that hatred. So for example, there's a verse that says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him is careful to discipline him. So he says, a parent might say they love their kid, But if they don't discipline their child and do the negative things necessary to form a child well, they really hate their child. Because they're giving themselves to what is for their child's true evil. Because an undisciplined child will be destroyed by the world, right? And so the point is, is hatred is both the intense dislike of somebody and doing actions to the true ill of another person. And when you put those together, you get the vice of hatred. Just like love is a deep heartfelt affection put together with a commitment to the true good of another person. And when you put those two things together, you get the virtue of love. Does that make sense? Okay, so when you lay out how the Bible speaks about this, it would look something like this. I know, classic next slide, right? Sorry. Right? So, so there are forms of each speech that there's a version of them above the line and a version of them below the line. For example, you could say something negative to another person, and there may be a fine line be- between whether that's condemnation or whether it's correction. You might actually be trying to correct them, but you're really condemning them, right? Or they might take it as condemnation, but you really were faithfully correcting them. 
right? Similarly, you can speak in this whole—you can speak positively to other people and still speak really unfaithfully to people, right? Like trying to get somebody to commit adultery with you is positive speech. Hey, baby, you look fine. Like that's—that's positive speech, right? There's nothing negative about that. It's just hateful because it's committing yourself to their true evil. It's unfaithfulness, and so it's it's evil, but it's not negative. It's perfectly positive. So is flattery and boasting, vanity. All that stuff is positive, but it's horrifically sinful and evil, right? And so as a Christian, what we're seeking to do is for Jesus to take us up this way. We want to go, we want every, we want, we want to do the full spectrum of the top here, both sides, and move increasingly so that all of our speech is up here and little and none of our speech is here. That's the goal. That's what we're doing. And learning to obey everything Jesus commanded and becoming fully and completely His with every word of our mouth. We're speaking, we're hoping every word of our mouth is going to be here. That's what we're working towards. And nothing's here. And so you can see the three in this passage, of course, joking, foolish, talking, obscenity, are here. So they're improper for God's people. They're unfitting to who and what we are and to what you would do in a family of brothers and sisters that we're seeking to grow in Christ. Now, okay, you might look at that and be like, Nick, that is too complicated, okay? It's not really that complicated. It's just like, be above this line. That's not complicated, but there's a lot of words, okay? So you could also think of it this way. Um, the goal of any truly Christian speech is to go for two ends or two goals. One is what the Bible calls edification, right? So that word comes from the word edifice, which we don't use much anymore. And edifice is a building. So edification is the building up of something, okay? So you can imagine any person or you, the church at large, all the people, or even non-Christians out there. God's goal for them is for them to be built up into something that they were made to be. The question is, every word that you speak, is it conducive to them being built up into what God wants them to be? Every word that you speak within the church, is it conducive to us all being built up together into what God has made us to be? Your speech to an individual other brother and sister in Christ, is it conducive to them being built up into what God has made them to be? Now you might be like, well, Nick, when you build stuff, that's all positive. You're constructing, you're doing constructive things. So what about all the negative speech? Well, listen, if you build a big enough building or house, at some point you get a bad carpenter and a whole room needs to get torn out. Or you might buy a lot that already has a terrible house on it that's been condemned, and you need to tear the whole thing down in order to build it. So the, the question of negativity is this. In order to build what God wants to build here, is there anything that has to be torn down or the building won't have the structural integrity it needs to be strong? Does that make sense? So if you know there's something— So you don't, just, you don't just go to people and correct everything that you see is wrong with them, Okay? That's not the goal. You'd be like, well, I can—I'm I'm very discerning, Nick. I have the gift of discernment, and I just—I'm really good at telling people what's wrong with them. God bless you. Um, <laughs> we're going to add virtues to that gift. How about that? Okay, and part of the—part of what you're doing is you're saying, not what does this person—what could be said to this person, Ellie, but what does this person need to hear and need to hear right now? What does this person need to hear, and what do they need to hear right now? Right? If you go back to chapter 4, he says, everything you say should be for the building up of other people, for the one who hears it, for the present need, and it should be gracious. gracious. So you just go back to that verse. That verse has the four categories you need. It's for them. It's not for you. That's really hard because sometimes you can convince yourself that it's for them, but it's really for you. You know what I mean? There's a little bit in there for them, but most of it's for you feeling better. That's bad. It's supposed to be entirely for them. For the present moment— not everything they ever need to change, but just what's helpful right now in the present situation. Does that make sense? What needs to be torn down so you can build the building so that it won't fall over? Because if somebody builds their faith and they want to grow in Christ and you don't say anything negative to them, you just try to put on new layers. And the, the first floor of their spiritual house is, is worldliness. And you build six layers of godliness on top of it. You're just making the crash bigger. And in the end, they'll be like, they'll think about the six stories you built and how good they were, and then it all came down, and then they'll think that there's something wrong with God. Or, or maybe they'll think there's something wrong with them. And they'll be like, you know, this is all— and then they won't rebuild. They'll just walk away. 
Anything that will compromise the structural integrity has to be faced. That is the negativity in edification. But the great—the reason I—one of the reasons I like this metaphor is the great majority of what should be done should be positive. If you build a building, there's not a lot of tearing. Like, once you get going, you might have to tear out this or that to fix some things. You might have to do a bunch of tearing down to start with, but you're looking for the positive. You want to build. You want to build things up. That's what you're focused on and looking for, okay? The second is fruitfulness, and you can think about that this way. This is in John 15. There is this great vine that is the Lord, and every believer, when they believe, gets plugged into that vine, and the sap of life flows into the branch that is that believer. You understand? And there's life in that. They are God's beloved children. And the Holy Spirit flows into their life, and he's doing constructive and helpful things, and that is the work of the Father. It is the positive, life-giving work of the Father, right? And then, do you know what he says? Jesus says right after that? He says, then my Father comes, and he prunes and cuts all these branches off so it'll be more fruitful. Now, almost everything in agricultural Israel got pruned. Okay, almost everything. Um, but he didn't say olive trees, even though olive trees get pruned. Everything's pruned. But you see, when, when you properly prune a tree, you don't cut off that much. Because they look terrible. You cut off like, like, a, a, bran- like a branch halfway down on a tree, and what it does it sends up all these tiny little fingers, and it looks terrible. Okay? But not true for a grapevine. Grapevines, you cut the most aggressively of anything. And if you cut them really aggressively in the right way, they become even more fruitful. And part of the metaphor of that is, listen, the divine pruning that leads to our fruitfulness can be very aggressive. It can feel like it's cutting off whole sections of our body. But the, but the goal, God's goal every single time, is the health of the branch and the fruitfulness of the branch. That's always the goal. So if you think God wants to use you in helping to prune someone, you need to ask yourself, does this 100% serve the healthiness of the, the long-term healthiness of the branch and the increased fruitfulness of the branch? And will it aid keeping that branch connected to the vine to receive the life-giving um, sap flowing from God into it? Does that make sense? Hopefully that's simpler. But if you know the purpose and you know the work, should be all the information we need. The question is, what are we going to do, right? Which is actually the next slide, I think. Boom, there we go. So, all right. So, here we go. Let's do some app, some direct, meddling, annoying applications. Are you ready for this? We'll get you ready for communion. You'll be ready to repent. You ready? Okay, here we go. <laughs> One, you have the card that Ashlyn made that is designed for you to spend some time thinking about this. Remember, there are some things you just really won't face unless you really spend some time soul-searching about it. And speech is one of those things. We tend to justify our speech. You need to really think about it. And you can take the question and ask yourself. You can take that question and pray and ask God and see what he might bring up inside your consciousness. Um, You can also take it to your small group and ask other people what they think you could do better in your speech. Right? There's all kinds of opportunities here of getting people involved in helping you grow. And if they heard the sermon, this would be the best time to ask them because they'll be like, okay, what's edifying and fruitful? Oh my gosh, you know. This should be a good time to ask. Okay. So let's go through 57 of these. One, just—you got to just start by changing your mind about your speaking. You just—you ha- have to actually believe it's as big a deal as sexual morality in terms of the good it can create and the destruction it can create. You've got to believe that it's terrifyingly important. You've got to believe that the destruction that it causes, Jesus derives from the murder command. Like, you got to put this stuff together and be like, this is a big, big, big deal. And you're not too young to start thinking about this. Don't be like, well, that's for people in their whatevers. No! Especially if you're in junior high. Start thinking about this. This matters. Right? Okay, number two. Choose to make speaking well a lifelong pursuit in imitating God, walking in the way of love, and being a fragrant offering. Be like, I'm going to get good at that. You got to decide this is going to be one of your hobbies. Like, your time, effort is going to be spent on this. You're going to invite people in your life to tell you what they fear for you in this and what, how you can improve. You're going to work on this consistently. This is going to be on the short list of things you're going to focus on. This is going to be as important to you as not falling into sexual immorality or whatever your, like, pet sin is. This is going to be a big deal. Because for Jesus, this is a big deal. For the apostle, this is a big, big deal. The power of life and death resides in you. Remember, God is the God who spoke the world into being. Jesus is the Word of God. 
The speaking message, the logic, the coherence of God. God cares an enormous amount. He is a speaking God, and you're the only creature in his creation that has the capacity of speech and the capacity of reason like him. It is a huge deal. I don't think your sexuality is created in the image of God. I don't think God is a, has sexual organs. It says in the Bible that God is spirit. When we are made in God's image, what you say, what the words you say, are some of the most direct ways you image God. Do you understand? It's the most fundamentally pure way you are like God. Think about that. It's incredibly potent in its meaning. Okay, one way to practice this is to go and apologize to people who you have said stuff to that is not edifying or fruitful, who you think would feel loved if you apologize to them. Now, I I used to say, go back to everybody you said something to that was a sin. But what that tends to produce in people is anxiety and like, did I tell everybody or who, you know, maybe— No. Just ask yourself, I said that thing to that person. I probably hurt their feelings. I bet—just ask yourself the question. If you went and apologized, would they feel loved? Would they feel loved and valued? And would they be like—and would they have like resolution? Be like, you know, thank you so much for apologizing. I really—that means so much, right? Like— or, or maybe they'll yell at you and cuss at you because it meant so much to them, right? Because what you said was so hard. Because listen, when we speak in ways that are very unhelpful, that are wrong, usually it's flowing out of insecurity or some very visceral primal area of our life, right? Because we don't want to ruin ourselves and everybody else. But we feel threatened or we feel hurt or we want the security. And so it just bubbles out of us and we don't hold it back. Well, listen, do something as primal. Like you don't like being humiliated, right? That's a p- pretty primal thing. Nobody likes that. So tie the humiliation of repentance to the primal way in which you want to sin, right? So like, there was a while, about three years ago, um, I found myself saying, saying like things that you would think were very minor that weren't completely true. Um, When I was younger, my memory was like a complete trapdoor in every number I ever read I knew. And then as I got later in my 30s, I started losing that acuity. And it, it was really bothering me. And so I was—I started compensating for it by, like, making up some of those details that I knew—I knew I was in the neighborhood, but I didn't know exactly what they were. But I wouldn't say, you know, it's something like a majority. I would say—I would still say, like, well, it's 64 percent. Because I used to be able to do that. And that was part of my sense of identity of who I was. I'm the smart guy that can remember everything. And so I would—I found myself starting to not remember exactly the number, but still then make it up that was pretty close. Right? And it was starting to happen kind of regularly. And I said, okay— I'm going to tell every person who I do that to until I stop doing this. It took two people. (laughs) Two people, like, because I was doing it out of vanity. But that vanity was rooted in something about, like, how I saw myself. Like, I was this person who had this kind of brain, and that brain made me better than everybody else. And then I started losing that brain, and I started losing a part of my identity. It was very visceral, and I, I found myself like I couldn't stop doing it. Then when I started tying in the vanity of having to humiliate myself to it, and every time I did this, I was going to have to apologize, and that was going to be really humiliating. I was like, I'm not doing it. And then it would come up and be like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to have to apologize for it. I ain't doing it. And like it stopped just like that. Repentance can have that effect on sin, especially when it has that dynamic to it. Third, practice affirmation more and more. Remember, people pretend that they're really confident. They pretend that they're self-assured. They pretend that they feel full and complete in themselves. They're not. They're terrified. They're full of insecurities. They're all quitters. And like people are like on the verge of giving up all the time. And they need you to tell them like, this is going to pass. You're doing fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Like, every, everybody feels this way. Like, you're going to make it. I'll be there for you. God is going to meet you in this thing. I know that we can get through this. Like, you got to, like, like, yeah, you did that thing. It was really dumb. But like, man, over the last six months, I've seen you change so much. I'm so encouraged, even though, yeah, you're confessing this to me right now. But I'm so encouraged because I can see over time, I see a huge difference. Like, you find ways to tell people true and gracious things to support and help them, to build them up, right? Practice affirmation more and more. Affirmation is the worship that you can do during the week. Find what God is doing in someone. Tell them how great it is. Credit God with it, at least partially, in a right—in a right derivative way. And then you can—you can worship all week by affirming other people. Right? Third is recognize your temperament and balance it as needed. 
we all have different temperaments. High Point Church has a disproportionate number of analytical people because of the way I preach. And analytical, pe analytical people tend to know what's wrong with everything. And so they're really good at telling people how to make it better, okay? Which can create a horrifically acidic and terrible environment for everyone. Because nobody's living up to anything, right? And so your, your, your temperament isn't going to change, probably. And you don't need to change your temperament, but your temperament is not an ethic, okay? Your temperament is not a morality. You may say you have all the same moral duties, okay? So you have the same moral duties of speaking for fruitfulness and speaking for edification and speaking faithfully, no matter what your temperament is. There's a way to live in your temperament that is godly, and there's a way to live in your temperament that is ungodly in relation to your speech. So for me, I, I can always see what's wrong. I feel like I can always see what's wrong with everything, how everything can be improved, right? And I don't, I don't celebrate the little victories, and I just don't do that stuff. And I— I have to overcompensate for that. And that's not unfaithfulness to my temperament. That's just being a loving human being and not giving myself to the natural vices of my temperament, but trying to develop it in the most positive way I can. Right? Do not use your temperament as an excuse for your malcontent and bad speaking. Does that make sense? Great. Okay. Five. Decide you will always tell the truth graciously. Graciously as graciously as you know how. Listen, for most people, when you have to tell a truth that's difficult at all, generally speaking, it is—you you need to reformulate it in your head four or five times before it's ready to come out, okay? I, I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to my wife, and I'm like, I shouldn't say that. No, I shouldn't say even that second version. No, no. With my kids, it's like 25 versions I'm like going through, right? It's—and it's—, and it's that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to say, okay, because remember he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Because you're holding back and you're revising it and you're revising it until it's less about you and more about them. Less about you and more about them. Until in love, it's entirely about them and not about you. And then you can let it come out of your mouth. Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep moving. Regard speech and silence as— a as a sacrifice to be fragrant, right? That's the language in the beginning part of the passage. Don't just aim to not sin in your speech or to just be faithful. Remember, think about it in terms of beauty. You don't just want to, like, not be a coarse joker. You want to speak beautifully. You want the speech that comes out of your mouth to have a fragrance that when God smells it, it's like a beautiful aroma, and that when others hear it, it's like an aroma. If you aim for that level of beauty, you'll have less and less problems just not saying the F word. You know what I mean? Okay, we gotta keep moving. Sorry. Seven, you should count your internal self-talk as speech. You should count your internal self-talk as speech. One, if you're tearing yourself up, that is, you are attacking somebody who's made in the image of God. You understand? You're attacking somebody who's made in the image of God. You shouldn't be doing that. It also means that, like, if you've been, you've been taught to, like, do all this, like, positive, just be really positive. Just be super positive in your in inner talk. Just be positive, positive, positive. That's, that has all the same liabilities of trying to be just positive and self-talk outside of you. The, the, the point is not to get your internal self-talk to be positive. The point is to get your internal self-talk to be like that graph. It should be for fruitfulness, and it should be for edification of you, and it should be above that line of love and faithfulness and not below the line of unfaithfulness and hatred. And that's the way you should talk to yourself. And as you discern the other inner voices, because most normal human beings have five or six voices at least bouncing around in their head at any given time, okay? That's normal, right? I think. <laughs> the, the, the impressions that you count as the word, words of God or the impression of God— all of the things that voice says is above the line of faithfulness. It might be negative, it might be positive, but it's always above the line of faithfulness. Do you understand? It's always inviting you away from idolatry to faith. It's always inviting you into sonship or daughtership. It's always inviting you into being more connected to the vine and prude fruitfully and tearing down only what is necessary for your own structural integrity. It's always for you growing, whether it's positive or negative. And if that voice isn't, you should not credit it to God. God does not speak to us and then and demand we speak a certain way and then speak to us differently than that. In relative to these things, obviously he speaks differently than we speak, but relative to these things, he is telling us 
What is he telling us to do? Why must we speak this way? Because we're, he's demanding that we be his imitators. There's a whole justification for speaking this way. You have to imitate God. So when you have voices in your mind that you think are God that are below the line of faithfulness, they're not him. They might be you. They might be voices of your insecurities and self-hatreds. They might be devils. They might be all kinds of possibilities. But that's not the prophetic voice of God meant for your salvation. Do you understand? Okay, keep going. Okay, fighting isn't the same thing as obscenity, foolish talking, coarse joking. Because some people will be like, Nick, you know, things are so bad right now, and people don't like Christians, and we should support the president, and, or this, like, coarse joking democratic person, and, like, we should blow, and, like, people need to fight. They can't just sit there and, you know, like, you know, Romney didn't fight, and Trump fought, and, you know. Okay. You can fight plenty hard without obscenity, foolish talk, demeaning other people, okay? You just have to get a little better at it. You understand? The kind of stuff we see on the cable news and the Twitters and the blah, blah, blahs and the this and that and, and our, our president, who is our president, and the people who are campaigning to become the next president, who may become our president, who we should respect, you can still say they're wrong, that they're mistaken, that this shouldn't be done, that the thing that they're doing is an obscenity, that all—you can say all that stuff. None of that is forbidden. You just can't lay down in the mud and say all kinds of coarse, disgusting stuff about people because it makes your argument easier because it's cheaper. There's nothing we can't fight about conscientiously with clear speech. Does that make sense? So listen, if, you, if you're a Republican and you want to support the president, you can just support the president. Just don't support the coarse joking and the lewd stuff and all that, those things. And if you want to support a Democratic candidate that's like saying all kinds of things, you can support their policies and what they even say is, is right or wrong and what we should do and shouldn't do. Or some cable person or some person who yells on YouTube that you like. But you should not be pulled into this idea that you can treat other image bearers however you want. You cannot do that. And that is more important than any policy we will ever have on the federal or state level. How we speak to each other and treat each other. You can, you can bring it right back to sexual morality and speech. What we do as a people together, and those will always— Trump— Every—it'll uh, always be more important than any of these other things. You can get exactly the policies you want. You can win the argument. And if you destroy the fabric of humanity doing it, you end up much worse off. There's lots of peoples and families and peoples in this country right now that are far worse off than they were 40 or 50 years ago, and they have way more money. They're, they're twice as rich, and their, and their suicide rate is four times what it was. And so on. You can give lots of examples. Nothing in the Bible says you can't fight. But you can only fight in certain ways. Every police officer has to fight. And, and, they, and the people fighting them are not fighting fair. And they don't have to fight totally fair— but there are certain very specific limits put on them to how they can and can't fight. Same thing with our military. And because of that, our military and our police have to be better at fighting and tougher at fighting and more focused on how they fight and ready to do it. And you and I, if we're going to get aggressive about something or we're going to speak out in the public and we're going to do that kind of stuff, or you're going you're to tweet stuff out there, listen, you better get a lot better at talking than the other people, which is good for you and good for us. Right, which I think is the next thing. Which we need to become a student of speaking faithfully, right? Like if, like if you use a lot of like really coarse language or you just, you just repeat the same kind of stuff over and over again. I had a professor who said to me in seminary, he said, Nick, you say like this sort of like semi-bad words a lot. And then you just say the same kind of things over and over again. He's like, you need to expand your vocabulary and become a lot more precise in what you're saying and really learn how to communicate. Really learn how to say exactly what you mean and, what not, and not what you don't mean. And what, that, what I had to do was begin to select words much more carefully, focus my speech a lot more, and as I did that, I didn't need the slang anymore. Because I, I learned to say what I really meant and describe it clearly. And so I didn't need colorful adjectives, and I didn't need, like, 
placeholder adjectives. You know, when, when people say a lot of cuss words or a lot of like semi-bad words, it, it's really just placeholders for a noun they don't trouble themselves to come up with. You know what I'm saying? And as you force yourself to be a person who wants to speak more graciously and truthfully, and you begin to fill those in with clear thoughts, you, you become less coarse. There's less obscenity. You're doing that thing, but it's also you're, you're, you're communicating much more clearly. People are hearing what you're really saying. You're also thinking clearer thoughts yourself, and it's making you smarter. And then when you go out in the culture and you fight, or you get in an argument, or you really advocate for something you really want to advocate for, you're much more articulate, you're much more effective, and you don't let yourself get pulled down in the mud because you can still fight. When people are throwing mud at you, you still have water to spray at them. Right? And then last, I think this is last. No, it's not last. Okay. We have, there's one more after this. Sorry. Most of our sarcasm would count as foolish talk and unwholesome talk. Okay. Our society is full of sarcasm. Most of it would count as unwholesome or foolish talk. Because what sarcasm tends to do is to make light of something. It tends to degrade its standing. And so when you're making sarcastic comments about things that are actually morally valuable or spiritually valuable, you are degrading something and treating it vainly without its proper worth. So if you make—so if somebody like commits adultery and you make some sarcastic comment about like everybody commits adultery, Right? And you kind of like normalize it with the sarcasm. What you're doing is you're taking something that matters and you're making it matter less in the passive-aggressive speech of the sarcasm. Now, sometimes that's helpful. Like if I was to make fun of how much we love the Packers and like, you know, we're going to get so excited. Like, I, yeah, the Packers are so important. Like, yeah. And it actually pointed to a truth, right? So I use sarcasm to cause us to laugh at ourselves so that something that was really actually kind of bad about us we recognized in the humor and humility that, that creates so that we valued something that should be valued higher, higher, and let something that was, should be valued lower, lower, so it put us in better relationship with reality rather than worse, then that sarcasm is working to be helpful, and it's actually edifying sarcasm. Does that make sense? That's good sarcasm. That's like one one-hundredth of our sarcasm. Most of our sarcasm is just bad talk that's coarse or foolish, translated into a passive-aggressive verbalocution. That's all it is. And Twain was right that it's the cheapest form of humor and the least creative. So we make ourselves dumber, we're less creative, we say things passive-aggressively, and we devalue the most important things in our existence. And we think it's funny, right? And so, just think about that. Think about that. Because we're supposed to be building each other up. And to build each other up, we have to build up the things that are valuable so that we would value them rightly so that they can build us up. And if we're sarcastically tearing each other down or sarcastically tearing down the things we should value very highly, then we're unhinging and tearing apart the body of Christ and the fabric of our lives together rather than bringing it together. And lastly, the first step is always faith and repentance in Jesus when you realize something is going really badly. So if you remember the passage I read before about like if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell— do you know what Jesus says right after that? He doesn't say, listen, if you said that stuff, you're going to hell. You should like probably jump off a bridge because it's a done deal, man. That's not what he says. He says, because your speech is such a big deal and because so many of us sin in the realm of our speech and hurt other people, if you come to worship God, you want to be, you want to belong to God, you want to be his worshiper, here's what you do. And you know that you have said something that's really hurt somebody else and caused them to, their heart to turn inward or something. You leave your offering I'll, be, I'll wait for you. God's like, I'll wait for you. Go find that person and go apologize. Just restore the relationship. That's the number one. That's the first. You, you don't go, oh, I'm going to hell. You go, no. You go and you restore. You apologize. You restore the relationship. You start weaving back the fabric of our relationships with each other that you've been tearing apart. That's what you do. That's how you show real faith. And then you come back and you worship God because he, he wishes to receive you. He loves you. He wants you to not just be his dearly beloved children, but he wants you to imitate him as his dearly beloved children. And he wants you to experience how beautiful it is when people speak to each other like he would speak to us. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to receive communion, um, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would put us in a repentant and humble mode in our hearts and minds. I pray you bring to our minds some of the things that we've said that are reckless, that are broken, that are wrong, that are well below the line of faithfulness. 
And I pray that you'd encourage us with the times where you've put in our mouths things above that line that are loving and faithful that we've been able to say to other people. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and you would convict us of a future of imitating you, of walking in the way of love, and of, like Jesus, being a fragrant sacrifice. And I pray that now as we come to this, that we would remember again the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, his death for our sins. We remember that it says in Romans that one of the reasons he died was that the mouths of people are open graves. And that that needed to be died for. And make us sensible right now of how thankful we should be that in your grace and your loving nature, you died for this too. And please remake the work of our throats to be beautiful, to be good in grace and truth, and to be edifying and fruit-making in the lives of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. If we're going to do